It's good to be back with you all again this morning, and I want to say thank you to both Alex and Stephen Kendrick for stepping in in my absence and delivering the word this last Sunday. I am grateful to God as a pastor to know that there are other pastors and other men right here in the church who can bring the word of God. Amen. Amen. All right, so the last time we were together in our study of the book of James, we found ourselves in a text that is often misunderstood and also often misrepresented. In fact, this is a text that divides believers over some of the most critical matters within the Christian faith. Issues such as the nature of faith, the importance of works, the essence of salvation, the eternal security of believers, the mission of the church, even all the way down to the integrity of Scripture itself. And by the time we're finished this morning, my prayer is that this group, those who are watching online, will see that the text is not that hard to understand. The issue is often what we bring into the text. Here's what I mean by that. We all have a certain set of biases that are informed by our past experience, by our environment, by the information that we've received. Some might call that their perspective or their opinion, their beliefs, their convictions. They might call it their viewpoint. It really doesn't matter. Whatever it is that you want to call it, it is fully engaged when we are receiving new information. And if we're not careful to submit that opinion or that viewpoint to Scripture, we will read into the text what we think it says or what we want it to say instead of pulling from the text what it actually says. And that is definitely the case in James chapter 2. People use this text. Let that word sink in for a moment. They use the text. They use it to prove their point. Many times, instead of studying the text to better understand God's point. So James is writing in order to address one of the most critical issues that happens for the believer. He is fighting for the purity of saving faith. He wants people to understand, do they have a relationship with God or not? He wants them to understand where do works fit into the life of the believer. He wants to clarify an issue that has been plaguing the church for 2,000 years. And quite honestly, it's still an issue that is impacting the church at this very time. So he confronts people who say they have a relationship with Christ, but their lives show no evidence of the indwelling presence of God. The connection between faith in Christ and personal good works is so strong that he boldly states in verse number 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's not just hurting. It's not just limping along. It's not just minimal. It's not just underdeveloped. It's dead. In fact, saving faith, as he is going to make the point, will be manifested in good works. So this morning, we are on Palm Sunday right now. We are leading into Easter Sunday this next week. If there is ever a time that we want to be clear on what the gospel is, it is moving into the very week, into the weekend that defines the Christian faith. Now, you might be in a place this morning where you say, Paul, I know without a doubt I am a believer. I praise God for that. But here's my question. Do you know how to explain the gospel well enough to those you love that if God opened the opportunity for you this next week to invite somebody to come with you, 
you would feel confident in that moment that you can share the gospel with them. These are gospel truths that we are dealing with in this text. I invite you to join me once again, the book of James, chapter number 2. Book of James, chapter number 2. We're going to be in verses 14 through 26. I am teaching the second half of the message I began a couple of weeks ago, entitled, Faith That Works. Faith That Works. Here's what it says, starting in verse number 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he also was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask today that you would so clarify your word. Would your spirit guide us into truth? Would you press out, move away any distraction that would keep us from being able to fully understand what this text is saying? God, I pray that the light bulbs would go off in the minds of believers in the room. May they see the essence of their faith and recognize the importance of works. And for those who do not yet know you, oh God, may you make that clear today. May it be so clear by the time this text is done that they recognize their need for you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So as I have said on multiple weeks in this study, James is all about consistency and integrity. In fact, he confronts those who say one thing and then they do something else. It is that lack of integrity or the hypocrisy of the person's life that is leading to an issue of getting in the way of their gospel witness. So James teaches us through this letter that there's two things that are essential for a person to live an undivided life. They need wisdom and they also need spiritual maturity. Now in chapter 2, James begins to point out some other areas of inconsistency. He addressed the inconsistency between the gospel and sins of division found over in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Then he addressed the inconsistency between sinning against each other and not even thinking about the fact that one day we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He did that in verses 10 through 13. Now in verses 14 through 26, he confronts one of the greatest inconsistencies that has ever been faced within the church. 
Those who profess that they have faith in Jesus Christ, and yet their lives show no works, no actions, no sign to validate that profession of faith. And he says that is inconsistent. It should not be that way. So I gave one key truth the last time we were together, and I said that one key truth covers the entire text. The key truth is it's possible to have works without saving faith, but it is impossible to have saving faith without works. In other words, it's possible for somebody to go out and do good things, do nice things, do things that might be helpful if they don't have a relationship with God. It's possible for somebody to do that. But it is impossible for somebody who is in right relationship with God. They have been redeemed. They have been restored. They have been born again from above. They have the indwelling presence of God living in them. It is impossible for that person to not have good works that will come out of their life. That's the argument that he is making. And I am giving three different statements or principles to support that. Last time I gave one. Here it is again. Saving faith is always accompanied by sanctifying works. Now, when I talk about saving faith, that refers to faith that is placed in the finished work of Jesus, whereby a person is made right with God. It is more than intellectual acceptance to a theological proposition. It is more than an emotional response and tears that come with a sermon being preached on a Sunday. It's saving faith involves the whole person, the mind, the emotions, as well as the will. I gave a statement last time. The mind understands the truth. The heart desires the truth. The will acts upon the truth. Warren Wearsby gave a beautiful breakdown of three types of faith that are mentioned in this text. I'm going to give them to you quickly again. He talked about dead faith found over in verses 17, 20, and 26. That is a type of faith that impacts the mind alone. This is a person who believes or they intellectually accept the basic premises of the gospel, but it does not create a desire inside of them nor a willingness to act upon what it is that they have heard. That is not saving faith. He says that's dead faith. Then he talked about demonic faith found in verses 19 through 20. That is faith that impacts the mind, but it also moves into the emotion. It talks about the fact that the demons, they also believe there's one God, and they shudder with that. There is an emotion. There is fear attached to it. Doctrinally speaking, demons have a very orthodox view of who God is. They believe there is one true God. They are very aware that Scripture is God's word, that Jesus is God's son, that salvation is by grace through faith, that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again on the third day, that he ascended back to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. There's no part of that in which even the demons would disagree with. But here it is. It does not move towards salvation. If somebody says, I believe the tenets of the gospel faith, but there's not a desire to know him. There is not a willingness to submit your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is still insufficient for salvation. That now leads into dynamic faith, found in verses 21 through 26. This is a faith that impacts the mind, the emotions, and the will. Please, please, please hear me this. When the Holy Spirit illumines a deceived mind, to understand the truths of the gospel. When the Holy Spirit quickens a dead heart 
so that that person can respond. When the Holy Spirit enables that person to place faith in the, the true message of Jesus Christ, God saves that person. It is not us saving ourselves. It is not faith in faith. It is God doing the work based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And what we find is it is only that type of faith, the saving faith that receives the life of Christ that can subsequently reveal the life of Christ. James points out a common issue. People are mistaking intellectual agreements with saving faith. And we have to be so incredibly clear at this point. Acknowledging gospel facts without fully entrusting yourself to Jesus is insufficient for salvation. Now somebody might say, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I've placed faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ? That is exactly why James is writing this to us. That's exactly what the whole first principle was all about. Saving faith is always accompanied by sanctifying works. One of the first places you can look in your life and say, did I mean it? Did I place saving faith in Christ? Is him saying, look at how you live. Is it that God is living through you? Are there works? Are there actions that validate the fact that you are indwelt by the Spirit of God? One of the things I shared last week, and I know it's troubling to hear somebody say this, is when people talk about their salvation experience, many times they will go back 20 years in the past and say, back then I prayed a prayer. And they hold on to that, regardless of whether or not their life has been changed. The point that I made on that is a greater indicator of true salvation is not I prayed a prayer back then, but that I am walking with Jesus today. There's current obedience. You are walking with Christ. There is a perseverance within the saints. When a person is truly saved, there is a new disposition that they have. This new disposition is one that hates sin, that loves the Lord, that desires to know him and wants to obey his will. That's the new disposition that settles into a person whose life has been changed. All of that leads into our second principle for this morning. Intellectual agreement is not saving faith. Intellectual agreement is not saving faith. Now, I know that this is a theologically packed two messages. I recognize it's easy to drift off when you hear theological terms and it's just teaching, 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 and there's not a lot of great illustrations along the way. I, I get that. But I, I want to do my best to encourage you. Track with me. Because when you understand the theological implications, it changes your walk with God, and it also changes the way you share Christ with others. This is important. Now, if you're having a hard time tracking the way we're walking through this text, if you'll remember, I said last time, we're not going to go linear, like start at the top and work down. Because there's certain themes that he's picking up all the way through. He emphasized at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end. So I'm pulling those together in three different statements. So if you're wondering how I personally was walking through it, let me give you the three questions that I was asking as I prepared for this message. And these three questions come back to our key truth. Here's the first question I asked. What is saving faith and how is it manifested? 
That's what we dealt with with principle number one. Then, second question I asked is, what is an imposter to saving faith? And why is it so confusing? That is what we're getting into with principle number two. And the third question is, how do works justify believers and perfect saving faith? That is what we're going to answer in statement number three. So that's the progression we're walking through. Now let's go back and look at what it says in verses 19 and 20. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? It is in the context of demonic faith that James stresses the distinction between intellectual agreement, even if there's emotions involved, and saving faith. Now, it is the emotional component of this that makes it so difficult. Many times people look back in their life and they reflect upon the moment that they place faith in Christ or they pray the prayer or they reflect back upon a moment that a family member or a friend prayed a prayer at a worship service or in somebody's home or in a Bible study. And they look back at that moment and they'll say something like this. You can't fake those types of tears. They had emotion. They were sincere. They were 100% engaged. I, I get it. I've seen it hundreds and hundreds of times. Please hear me. Please hear me. I am not doubting the sincerity of anyone. I'm also not going to tell you what did or did not happen in a person's heart between that individual and God. But what I want to do is point you back to what the Word of God says so that between you and the Holy Spirit, you can see where you are in alignment with God. Here's what we find according to Scripture. The Bible addresses that exact scenario. It's the scenario of somebody who receives the gospel message with emotion. If you're wondering where is that at, the story, the best example of this is found over in Mark's gospel, chapter number 4, verses 1 through 20. It's the parable of the four soils. And in this parable, Jesus describes the person who receives the gospel with joy, but they don't understand the cost of following Christ. Oh, oh we got to stop here for a moment. Stop here. When you share the gospel with someone and you skip over repentance of sin and you skip over the fact that following Jesus will cost you everything and you just hold out the blessings of forgiveness and you hide the cost, you are doing damage in that moment. If you notice John the Baptist's message, if you notice Jesus' message, it's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It starts in repentance. And when we just hold out the, the nice pieces, the, the blessings, and we hold back the fact that following Jesus is going to cost you everything. It will cost you your will. It will cost you your way. It will cost you your desires in a world that has gone mad trying to fulfill itself. If we don't tell people that, they think Jesus will be a great addition to my life. No, he's either going to be your life or he's not in it. 
Scripture is clear. When Christ, who is our life, has appeared. we got to tell the whole piece. Mark chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, Jesus describes this person as rocky soil. Listen to his description. Some fell, talking about the seed of God's word, some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Now he goes in the same chapter, verses 16 and 17, and he gives an explanation of that soil type. He says, others like seeds sown on rocky places hear the word, and they receive it with joy. That's that emotion piece I'm describing. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. Why do they only last a short time? He tells you. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. In other words, when they recognize there's a cost for following Jesus, they say, I'm out. I didn't sign up for that. I just signed up to get into heaven one day when I die. He says, they have no root, but they only last a short time. People get confused with emotional decisions because we equate emotion and outward signs of growth like church attendance or baptism or purchasing and reading a Bible for three months. We equate those things with repentance. This is worth it. Listen, the New Testament equates fruit with repentance. John the Baptist scolded the religious crowd by saying, produce fruit that is consistent with repentance, Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus taught in Luke 6, every tree is known by its own fruit, not growth. It's known by its fruit. John 15, it teaches that when we abide in Christ and Christ abides in us, he bears fruit. There's fruit that is going to come in the life of the believer. So what is fruit? If fruit is a sign of repentance, what is fruit? One of the best places to see it is Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit of God is indwelling you, there is going to be a manifestation of the Spirit of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness through the Spirit. Now tell me which part of that gets lined up on Sunday morning worship. I read my Bible, and I pray, and I put some money in the offering plate. The Spirit of God's working on the inside coming out. If you're wondering what's another sign of spiritual fruit that is found in Scripture, I would direct you back over to Romans 6.22. Fruit is described there as holiness and obedience. Where's the holiness? Where's the obedience? That's fruit that comes through the Spirit of God in you. If you're looking for another reference, I'd give you Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Beautiful. Fruit is described as the praise of our lips to God that comes, here it is, through Christ. It has it through Christ. That's so important. That's why James is so bold and he's so clear. Faith without works is dead. If that type of fruit is not in a person's life, he was like, that's not saving faith. If there's no fruit, if there's no change, if there's no works, here it is, there's no Jesus. 
That's why he wants to make sure everybody understands this. Verse 20, he states again, faith without works is dead. James is not attacking the importance of faith in the Christian experience. He's attacking the validity of professed faith that produces no outward change. Think of it like this. Saving faith has three essential aspects. Understanding, conviction, and trust resulting in reliance. Let me help you see what each of those are about. By understanding, a person fully grasps the claims of the gospel. They understand it. It makes sense. But here's the next one. By conviction, a person has assurance that the content of the gospel is true. Now, why do those two need to be separate? Because you can understand something and still not believe it to be true. I can get my head around the basic concepts. It it doesn't mean I personally believe it to be true. But then it goes one step beyond that. It also is by trust resulting in reliance. A person relies completely upon the gospel as his or her only means of salvation. You can understand a concept. You can believe it to be true and still not entrust yourself to it. Saving faith involves all three, understanding, conviction, and trust resulting in reliance. Anything that stops short of that is not saving faith. Saving faith is always accompanied by sanctifying works. That was principle number one. Intellectual agreement is not saving faith. That's principle number two. And here's number three. Sanctifying works prove and perfect saving faith. This is found in verses 21 through 26. James gives us three examples of faith through two different people. Uh, The two people are Abraham and Rahab. You could not find two more opposite people, and I will explain that in just a moment. And right in the middle of these examples, this is what it says. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. I love that first statement. Faith was working with his works. Here's the reason that's beautiful. Faith and works are not in opposition to each other in this. They're in cooperation with each other. They're working together in order to help a person understand the validity of their faith. Now, when I said you could not find two people who are more opposite than Abraham and Rahab, here's what I meant by that. Um, Abraham was a Jew. Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham was considered to be a righteous and godly man. Uh, Rahab had a little bit of a reputation. Abraham was called a friend of God. Rahab belonged to the enemies of God. And yet both of them find their their place in the same exact text. So what was in common that brought both of them together? Here it is. They both heard a word from God and they exercised faith in it. That's what brought them together in the text. Now I'm going to describe both and I'm going to start with Abraham. Genesis chapter 15 and chapter 22 are the reference points to give the background for the examples that James provides. God called Abraham out of the land of Ur into Canaan, and he also promised to make a great nation out of him. 
It was through this nation or Israel that Messiah would come and the world would be blessed. Abraham's salvation experience, if you want to call it that, is recorded over in Genesis chapter 15. It's at night. God brings him out before the stars of the heavens, and he basically gives him a promise. So shall your seed be, or your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and he, speaking of the Lord, counted it to him for righteousness. That's the moment. God gave him a promise. He believed the promise. God counted it to him as righteousness. The word counted is a legal or a financial term. It means to put to one's account. Prior to this moment, you could say his spiritual bank account was on empty. After this moment, because he heard from God and he placed faith in what God said, it says it was counted to him. Righteousness is deposited into his account. Abraham did not work for this righteousness. He received it as a gift from God. He was declared a righteous person. He was justified by faith, Romans chapter 4. Justification, in case you're wondering, is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner to be righteous on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross. Now, how did that happen prior to the cross? Old Testament saints placed their faith in the Messiah who would come. New Testament saints place our faith in the Messiah who has come. It's the same piece. It's placing faith in what God has told for us. James now brings up another example from Abraham's life. This event took, many, uh, took place many years later, but it's also connected to that same promise of descendants. In this part of the example, it is when God tells Abraham to give back that same promised child of Isaac by putting him on the altar for God. Now, it's kind of hard for Isaac to be the one to lead the charge on the descendants that's going to be as numerous as the stars of the heavens when if he's dead. So in this moment, once again, you find that Abraham hears from God, he obeys, he acts in faith. Here's the different part of that. That moment did not save him. It says he was justified by faith. It was counted to his account back in Genesis 15. Instead, his obedience in Genesis 22 proved that he was saved. Do you see now what it says in verse 22? You see that faith was working with his works. As a result of works, faith was perfected. There's this beautiful, perfect relationship between faith in Christ and the works that come from that. The second example of a person that is given is that of Rahab. The background of her story is found in Joshua 2 as well as in Joshua chapter 6. Here's the story. Israel is about to take the city of Jericho. That was her city. That's where she lived. Joshua had sent in spies to get the lay of the land. They met Rahab. She protected them, and she also affirmed that she believed in their God and what their God said was going to take place in that city. When the men departed, they gave her this promise that they would save her and her family when the city was taken. And that is exactly what they did. Now, according to what we find in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, Rahab's one moment there is one of the greatest examples of faith found in the Bible. It makes its way into Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. I mean, this is a huge, huge moment. Here it is. She heard what God was doing, 
believed what God was doing and acted in accordance with that. She responded by risking her own life to protect the Jewish spies and by sharing the news with those who were within their family. Here's the thing. Saving faith is always going to lead to actions. But those actions don't stop at the moment of salvation. They keep going through the course of the person's life. In fact, I love the fact that the text helps us to see that. In fact, saving faith, according to what we find in the text, has works, verses 14 and 17, is perfected by works, verse 22, and is active along with works, verse 22. That's the faith that Abraham and Rahab had. Now, James also tells us faith apart from works is dead, verses 17 and 26. It does not profit, verse 16. It is barren, verse number 20. It does not have the power to save, verse 14, nor to justify, verse 24. In other words, faith without works doesn't work. Did you hear that? Faith without works, it doesn't work. So now here's the big question that many of you are wondering. How was Abraham justified by works, James 2.21, if he's already been justified by faith, Romans chapter 4? All right, got to listen to this. By faith, he was justified before God and his righteousness was declared. By works, he is justified before men and his righteousness was demonstrated. One is God declared it. Two is now it's shown to others. Abraham and Rahab were justified by works in the sense that they demonstrated their righteous status by performing those good works. So the Apostle Paul, he stresses that faith is the only condition for the declaration of righteousness. And James argues that works are the only way that the righteous status can be demonstrated. In other words, he's saying, if somebody has this indwelling, saving faith, how do you tell other people about it? How do you let them know that it's real faith? It's like nobody can see inside the person's heart. Nobody was necessarily there apart from the Spirit of God with that person in the moment of salvation to know exactly what happened in that person's life. How does that happen? He says the demonstration of this is going to come out in their works. Again, James and Paul are not in conflict about the basis of salvation. They are not standing face to face in opposition with each other. They are standing back to back fighting two common enemies of saving faith. Paul opposes works-based salvation. James opposes easy beliefism. Now go back to verse 22 and we'll be finished in just a moment. You see that faith was working with his works. This is an active faith. It doesn't just stop at the moment of salvation. It continues. We know that because the verb tense that is used is the imperfect tense. It speaks of continual, repeated action. It's going to keep on working with their faith. The second part of that verse says, and as a result of works, faith was perfected. Abraham's faith not only did something for his works, get this, his works did something for his faith. This is beautiful. The verb tense here means to perfect or to bring to maturity. Just as Christians 
are, protect, are perfected through faithful endurance of trials, chapter 1, 3 through 4. So faith is also perfected through successive acts of obedience, chapter 2, verse 22. Every time Abraham faced a problem, he faced a trial, he faced a test, he faced an issue. Every time he faced that moment and he responded in obedience to the will of God, the text says it strengthened his faith, it deepened his faith, it perfected his faith, it matured his faith. Do you know why that's such good news for you and I? Because whatever trial you're facing right now, God is using it to perfect and to mature and to build your faith. Aren't you so glad that the moment you become a follower of Jesus Christ, he doesn't throw sometimes the biggest, most challenging things at you. Instead, he walks you through different steps, different challenges, different issues along the journey. And as we respond, as we act in obedience, all of a sudden, he lets something else come in and something else. And you're like, I don't like these challenges coming in. The issue is, do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want your character to be conformed to the image of Christ? The way this happens is he says, I'm going to keep walking you through. And every challenge, if you will walk in obedience, I will mature your faith in it. When you stop and say, I'm done, watch out. You can sit on that plateau for a long time. And by the way, we have a patient God. When you finally choose to re-engage the spiritual process, he has no problem starting you right back off where you left off. And many times you will see that he will take you back to the same challenge again and again and again until you're willing to say, God, you're right, I'm wrong, I submit to you, do your will in and through me. Now don't get too excited because then the same thing you just amened, he's going to keep sending back to you to find out if you meant it. It is a process of walking with the Lord. But that's the reason the journey is so beautiful. That's why it's important that we look back, not from last week maybe, or not from last month, but go back and look at where he found you five years ago and 10 years ago and 20 years ago. And you say, I might not be exactly where I want to be, but praise God, I'm further than I was back there. It's a journey that he's walking us through. And all along the way, when we respond in obedience to that call that he is making on our life, when we respond, he matures our faith. He strengthens our faith. And here's why that's beautiful. It's beautiful. Little faith will trust him for little things. Medium-sized faith will trust him for medium-sized things. Big faith will trust him for big things. Complete faith will trust him for all things. It's the journey he's taking us on. So how do you know where you're at before God? I'm going to give you some questions as we close. 2 Corinthians 13.5, it says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. So here's some questions. Was there a time in the past when I realized I was a sinner and admitted my condition before God? Do I understand the gospel? 
and agree that I cannot save myself? Have I repented of my sins? That is, turned from them, forsaken them. Listen. Or do I secretly still love my sin and want to enjoy it? Have I trusted Jesus alone for my salvation? Do I enjoy a growing, active, loving relationship with the Lord? Is my life different since Jesus came into my life? Do I have a desire to share Christ with others? Or am I ashamed of him? Do I enjoy fellowship with God's people? And am I ready for the Lord's return? If you're not sure of how you would answer some of those questions, in just a moment, there's going to be some of our pastors and pastor's wives at the front. There'll be people, also some of our pastors, that'll be standing in the atrium next to the next step table after the service. I recognize some people, they will have a burning conviction. They need to get an answer now. And some will say, I'll wait until I talk to somebody in the atrium. Here's the thing. When Scripture clearly tells us what is and what is not saving faith, we need to adjust our perspective to match the Word of God. Don't, don't trust I had this moment here. No, listen. The issue becomes we can deceive ourselves. The only way we know what is true versus what is false is does it align with Scripture? Do not try to force Scripture to match your experience. Let your experience align with Scripture. I'm going to ask you if you would bow with me for prayer. Heads bowed, eyes closed for just a moment. As we're coming to this time of decision, this time of reflection, it might be that there's people in the room right now that, that either you know without a doubt that you have not placed faith in Jesus as it was described in the Word, or maybe you're not sure and you just want to talk to someone. Just know, in just a moment, the invitation will be open, the altar will be open, there will be people that are standing there, that they want to help you with that. There might be people right now that you're going through this and you're saying, I know without a doubt I'm saved. That's not my concern. My concern is I don't know if anybody around me would recognize I'm a Christian. My life, my outward actions have maybe not conformed to the standard of Christ. There is never a better time to bring your obedience up to date than right now. The past we cannot get back the future is not promised to anyone, but we do have right now. It might be that you're just in need of prayer. It might be that you are looking for a church home, whatever it might be. We're going to have a word of prayer. We're going to sing a final song of invitation. I encourage you, would you respond to God? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we recognize that those who were saved in this room are only saved because you sovereignly stepped out of glory to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you and we praise you for that. As we're leading up to the week of Easter, Lord, may our minds be captivated by the gospel. 
May you bring a freshness, a, a newness to our understanding of what you did so that we might have eternal life. For those who might be in the room or those who are watching online and they are not absolutely sure of their standing before you, oh God, would you make today the day that they know for sure? May your spirit gently and sweetly but clearly call them to yourself. Lord, you alone are the one who saves. May we be faithful and continuing to share your gospel truth so that more might come to know you and make you known. In Jesus' name, amen.